Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as we pause from our busy weeks, from vacations on the calendar, and from projects in the yard, and from time with family and friends and busyness at work, I pray that in this moment, as we pause, Lord, you'd help us to see, even in our weaknesses and our frailty, the good plan of your redemption worked out in and through the church. Lord, I pray that this mystery that has been revealed will fall afresh again on us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of Jesus' last words tell us what was on his very heart, what was consuming his mind in those last moments. Particularly, we think of the garden scene, the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 17, where it's shown to us and revealed to to us his care and his concern is for the church. Um, He's praying to the Father that we would be a people united and that we would be sanctified, that we would grow to be more like the one that we are united with. He says, or praise rather, I do not ask for these only, meaning the 11 apostles that were there, but he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So we see on Jesus's lips and his prayer, his very heart, is that the gospel would not just be something that saves us from sin and death, but that the gospel would be something that saves us into fellowship and life. And so it works on on both ends, a a unified fellowship, which includes, yes, both our unity with Christ, but also very clearly our unity with one another. It's been one of the themes that we've seen in the book of Ephesians. A couple weeks ago, we really turned the corner where after meditating for the first three chapters, um, seeing very clearly God's redemptive plan worked out in the gospel of grace, then Paul turned and he said, now, 
because of this grace. Uh, Walk in a manner which matches the grace that we have been given. So it's almost as if he says, okay, you're saved by grace. Now go live amongst each other with that type of grace that I've given you is now to be in and amongst the unified body of Christ. And and I want you to see where we're going here. And so I'm going to ask you in your Bibles, if you look down at chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, I'm going to read those, and then we're going to do a U-turn, and we'll go back kind of to the beginning and work our way to it. But I want you to see where we're going first. So look at verses 15 through 16, where Paul says, and I'm, and I'm going to emphasize a particular word, rather than speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So you heard me emphasize twice there, grow. And I I think that's really pertinent. It's like the foundation of this section here is that we would grow. And, And because that is where we're going, I think the goal then is for us to see that even as we're heading towards that direction that you and I would grow, we want to have the the words of of, uh, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace and former slave owner, where he, he says, I am not what I want to be, nor am I what I ought to be. I am not what I one day will be, but I am not what I once was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Why? Because John Newton, he had grown. And growth is essential to the Christian walk. To be a stagnant Christian, friends, it's it's an oxymoron. No, as Christians, we are those who grow. And if growth is essential to where we are headed today, I want to view this morning's passage in that light So that you see the source of our growth, the gifts to help us grow, and the goal of our growth. And that's how our time will unfold. If you're outlining this morning, the source of our growth, verses 7 through 10, the gifts to help us grow, verses 11 through 12, and the goal of our growth, which we'll conclude with in 13 through 16. So first, the source of our growth, verses 7 through 10. Come back and read those with me again. I want to bring these to mind where he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Well, see, here Paul, he's meditating, and he's meditating upon upon a particular psalm. It's Psalm 68. This is where he reads in that psalm. If you were to go through and read through Psalm 68, you would read and come across where it says, God is our salvation. And God, on behalf of his people, he has triumphed over his enemies. That is the theme of the psalm. It is why the psalm is titled, in many of your Bibles, if you were to flip to Psalm 68, it would read, God shall scatter his enemies. Uh, one way this occurred in ancient times, when you scattered your enemies and you conquered and were victorious over your enemies, what do you do? Well, you've conquered the town, you've taken over, you've, you've you know, killed their king, you've conquered them. The thing to do is you, you take the spoils. 
you, you gather up the flocks, you gather up the gold, and you begin to distribute them amongst your own people now that you've conquered their, your enemy. And the movement in Psalm 68, if you were to go through, you could see it very clearly. Psalm 68 is that God conquers all the way from Mount Sinai in the south, all the way up to Mount Zion. That is the direction. Uh, so that we can say that God has been wonders, wonderfully victorious from all the way from Mount Zion, which is in representation with the law, all the way to Zion, where the cross was. We can say from the law to the gospel, Christ has been wondrously victorious. And you can see that this is in the terms that Paul's reading Psalm 68, and he begins to think through how is this in connection? How is it that God is conquering from this region to this region? How did these come together? How he bore our sin on the cross, thereby killing sin and death. How he fulfilled the law at Mount Sinai perfectly. And a unique twist is Paul reads in Psalm 68, verse 17, where it says, and he received gifts from men. Well, in reference, that, that's what I was talking about earlier. When you conquer your enemies, the gifts that you receive are the, 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 the spoils from the town that you've conquered. Paul reads that and he says, you know what, thinking through of how this works with Christ, as Christ has been victorious over his enemies, here it's not that he receives gifts from his, from his men, but he gathers up the flocks and the gold, so to speak, and he distributes them to all his people, to his church, so that they would have the, the, the gifts. Here too, we see that Christ have obtaining these spoils. He distributes them to us. Paul in verse nine seems to have a particular point he wants hammered home. We often say, what goes up must come down. And here, Paul is emphasizing, this is the Lord who defies gravity. He works in reverse. He who comes down must ascend up. The going down piece raises the question, okay, if the Lord descended to the lower regions and then it says, comma, the earth, what does that mean? That's interesting. I mean, some might take this as Jesus' descent into Hades, thinking of First Peter chapter 3, verse 19. Others say this is the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But I think the most fitting view to understand would be a little bit more simple. It's just merely saying that Christ has left heaven and come to earth to be born of a virgin and to live in difficulty amongst us. So that we hear him say foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, Ephesians 4.9 is primarily in reference to Jesus' incarnation, his incarnation. Him becoming God in human flesh. This fits better the context that Paul is speaking of here when he wants us to clearly see. Christ rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And in connection with Psalm 68, make no mistake, Jesus has won. Jesus is victorious. And out of his victory and according to his measure, he gave us these gifts. And I think that's essential for us to see here what the sources of these gifts are. Who is it who gives the gifts here? It is Christ. Oh, sure, there are periods for you and I of learning and growing and being used in our very giftings, but primary for us to see here is the source of these gifts to the church is Jesus. Not man-made efforts 
to front-run God. No, but Christ in his wisdom supplying and giving what we need. I was reminded this, of this this week, just praying, Lord, would you give us these gifts? Would you give us the good gifts that we need in this church? Lord, would you be victorious here on the mountain, in the Mount Hood Village community? Would you be victorious so that people would see, here is the place that God has given gifts? So that people would recognize, yes, the Lord has indeed descended, but he is the ascended Lord as well. And with the source of our growing and growth being Christ, the gifts are there with some sort of intention, some sort of purpose. What is that? Well, we now turn to see the gifts that help us grow in verses 11 through 12. See verse 11 with me here where he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Does our unity mean that we are supposed to be clones of one another? No. Not according to this passage. God in his wisdom desires us to be united. We're to be united in faith. We're we're, we're to be united in our baptism as the body. Remember, previously we read about the seven ones. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That was at the beginning of chapter 4. So there's something that unifies us. But God in his wisdom, we're not supposed to just be clones. We're supposed to say the Lord has gifted us in particular areas of diversity. So let's emphasize that as well, that God has gifted us in various ways to build up the church. I'm not sure if you caught this here, but these giftings, these gifts, spiritual are not necessarily spiritual gifts. Like faith, like generosity, like acts of service. Those are spiritual gifts that you might see mentioned elsewhere, like in Galatians, for example. But these gifts are, interestingly, people. People. The the gifts given to the church are people functioning in particular ways for the building up of the body. Now, I desire to take each of these in turn, and I'm going to be overly brief. So bear with me if you have questions. This would be great for us maybe sometime down the line to have a series where we spend time unpacking what is apostleship and and, and prophecy and um, shepherding and getting into depth. I'm going to be overly brief. And if you have questions, bug me. We can talk later. But first, see the apostles. The apostles were those who were alive to partake in the earthly ministry of Christ. They were, even as Paul was, eyewitnesses to the authority of Christ, a connection with his death, his burial, his resurrection. They were unique in their being the first charge with taking the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's the apostles. And the prophets, they were the ones who during the season of Scripture being penned, continued to receive revelation from God to share with the church. Not so much always future telling, so much as speaking on behalf of the Lord God's message to us. And again, I'm being brief here, but understand there may be room for different forms of prophecy. Here, though, I think Paul has in view the form of prophecy that says... God has led me to tell you this and to write you this, you know. And, and this is, I think, clear because of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says that we were being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so these kind of lump together the categories that he has, that he's um, revealing to us these offices, these roles, these gifts to the church. 
uh, I believe, are in reference to the beginning of, of the church age when scripture was still being penned. And so this is why, in my view, my understanding, these, these roles are not necessarily in operation. But for you and I, and I hope you catch this, these roles are still valuable. Why? Because I, we still need the, the work of the apostles and the prophets today who penned these things. This is why this morning, you and I, we're not reading Moby Dick. We're not reading Beowulf. No. This is why we opened up with Ephesians where Paul says, I, an apostle, sent from God to you. This is why we want to emphasize the, the role of the apostles and prophets, even if we see that they're not necessarily functioning in an ongoing manner today. But then we come to some other categories that clearly are, even as we heard last week, evangelists. The word comes from euangelion, meaning gospel. Uh, these, these folks are gospelizers. They are the ones who tell the good news. They've been gifted with the ability to clearly and winsomely proclaim the good news, making it known to, well, well even to the church, but also to those who have yet to know. So that those who have yet to hear about the truth of what Christ has done would come to a point where they do believe. So the evangelists. And then two other categories that are overlapping, shepherds and teachers. These two Overlap while the category of teachers is more broad than shepherds. In other words, all shepherds are teachers. So that might be the broad umbrella, teachers. And then underneath of that, a more narrow band of shepherds. But as I, I've, I, as I've argued elsewhere, I believe shepherds, elders, pastors, overseers are all ways of referring to the same category. Both Paul and Peter, both of them use these categories interchangeably, which is why there's not some great divide between myself as a pastor and the elders of this church. It's just that my time is set aside to be able to be dedicated more towards the church than some of the elders. So both um, Paul and Peter make this clear that they are given to help lead and to teach the church. The image of a shepherd, I think, is helpful because just as a shepherd guides and leads and feeds and protects the sheep, that's exactly what the, the, the category of shepherds are to the church on the mountain. The, 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 the pastors, the elders, the, the overseers of the church, they're tasked with the role of, of not just guiding the church, but feeding the church, Christ's word, but also protecting the church from error and, and, and protecting them from wolves who would come in here to try and you know, tear us apart from the truth of Christ. This is the role of the shepherds. And you see how all, this is what caught me this week. I was a bit surprised. All of these roles, apostles, prophets, evangelists, uh, teachers, shepherds, these are all word giftings, gifts to the church that are word bound in connection with the word of Christ, making it known. And those who do trust in Christ will grow in their depth of understanding in his word. And even those who have grown because of the work of teachers, shepherds, and evangelists, ideally what happens is others out of, from among us become more teachers, shepherds, and evangelists. These giftings then are all in line with what it is used to help you and I grow. While positively, you and I see that Okay, so if the church was given gifts, and the gifts are not just spiritual random gifts, but they are people in particular, um, 
we see that they're here to help the body grow, but then there's also a warning on the other side of what we, we uh, another direction we need to be weary of and not go into, which is to assume that these gifts, these people to the church were given so that they could do the work of ministry. That is not the direction we should go. It would be very easy for you and I, even for myself, where I, where I stand is to fall into the mentality that the church has hired a pastor or elected elders to serve in a role to do the work of ministry. And it's very clear from this passage. It hits us right between the eyes because it makes it clear that this church has hired a pastor and elected elders to help them do the work of ministry. So that when the elders rightly help the congregation understand the word of God, we're equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. When we come alongside someone in our church body who is hurting or in pain or is suffering or another person who's struggling in various ways with sin, or when we as elders gather together to disciple men, what we are doing then is helping the church then go do the work of ministry. Uh, and, And this goes... All over the place. Everything from raising our kids to evangelizing our neighbors to caring for people in the body. I mean, this work of ministry is so diverse, it's, it, it's overwhelming. And I wonder how many churches view this whole scene. And some, for some reason in their minds, they say, this is a bit like a man who has a car. And he, and he brings it out in Highway 26. And he starts the car and he puts it in neutral. And then he gets out of his car and he begins to push the car down the road. And you think, this is totally backwards, man. What are you doing? You're not supposed to push the car. That's you doing the work. No, you're supposed to get in the car and maybe a light little steering here, light little push on the gas pedal or on the brake. You're getting the car to do the work. Do you see the difference? This is how it is with shepherds, with pastors, with evangelists in the church. They're there to just do the light little steering and push on the gas. They're not supposed to be the ones that are getting out and pushing the car down the road. You all are the engine. You all are the wheels in motion. The leadership here is just to make sure we don't crash in a ditch. Right? So this is why, I, as I mentioned earlier, I am praying, particularly for the church on the mountain, that the Lord would give us these gifts. I'm praying particularly that the Lord would give us more shepherds, more evangelists, more teachers, more people who want to grow in learning from the apostles and prophets. This church needs women. It needs women who will desire to be able to handle the word of God rightly. And women who say, I want to teach my family well in this. I want to teach my fellow women well in these categories. And so I'm willing to get equipped to do that work of ministry. It also means we need in this church men who say, I desire to shepherd. I desire to pastor, to elder, to help oversee the church and to walk with people in this body in their worst moments. I desire to point them to the scriptures and to Jesus. We need evangelists who say, you know what? I don't really know everything. I I just know that Christ has called me to share the gospel by asking questions, by questioning evangelism, by reaching out and helping and taking others here in this body to reach out and just say, I wonder if, or have you thought about, or tell me more about this and question to get to know so we have the opportunity to reflect what we believe is the truth. Well, the source 
of our growth, the gifts to help us grow, brings us back to the original picture of the goal, the reason we might say for our growth. The goal of our growth is found as we unpack here the the last section of this paragraph in verses 13 through 14. Read this with me where where Paul says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We'll pause there. If if we can organize the line of thinking here, we then see Paul has come out of a section in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where the theme of unity was emphasized. And then here we read seven ones, where he's, remember where he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then here we see God brings into unity through the diversity of gifts of the church to equip us with the goal of maturity. Most simply put, God gave the gift to equip, the gifts to equip the church for growing towards maturity. Why do children grow and mature? So they can move out. Amen? Here, though the growing up leads into three parallel tracks in verse 13, we see the word two, and we we see that word two is mentioned three times. The reason for this growing up into maturity is to a threefold piece here, or it could also be translated into, but see how this goes where he says, um, if you, let me put it this way, if you follow the main argument that God gave uh, the particular people for the growing up until we attain to or into the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, there's one, to or into the mature manhood or womanhood, to or into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And interestingly, uh, this faith and knowledge, again, both relate to what? As it brought up, the reason these gifts were given, it's word-based gifts. It's to get the church to be steeped in God's word. And when you have a better grasp on God's word, you will gravitate towards becoming more like Christ. It permeates in you, and what comes out of you is naturally to live more like Jesus. And Paul then in verse 14, he states what that maturity will be um, helping us avoid. Children are the ones who can be tempted to believe something completely that is wrong-headed. And so we see in verse 14, he says, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know, as children, children get weird ideas in their head. They misunderstand things. This is why my wife and I chuckled when one of our kids thought, oh no, I saw mom and dad kiss. There's a baby on the way. Now, they weren't totally off, but you, you... misunderstand things. You, you may kind of, I think I'm in the right direction of something as a child, but it's only later with maturity that you really begin to understand how everything comes together and works. So my concern is for our church, I just worry about everything from the prosperity gospel that says, if you believe in Christ, he's going to earthly bless you with monetary riches. That's a lie from the pit of hell all the way to charismania, Uh, to dead, graceless legalism, to cult views of Jesus and the Trinity, to wrong-headed understandings of our sexuality, to idolatry of 
family, and career. We don't want to be tossed to and fro. Friends, especially my friends here who do not yet trust in Christ, I have been preaching to you this morning in hopes that you will come to a place where you will no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves of the sea. The, the picture there is when you are tossed to and fro, it's like your ship has gone down and there's a wreckage of the ship and now you're just bobbing up and down on the ocean on a piece of wood hoping that you'll make it. it, it it's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing to see and I'm afraid that there are people who've been bombarded this last week with ways to make yourself feel better. Places and objects of false hope, shallow worldly ways that, that have been presented to you through our phones, to the billboards, walking down the grocery aisle. This world keeps throwing forward ways that will make you seem to be more fulfilled and leave you bobbing up and down on an ocean of lies, tossed to and fro by the waves. This is why Sunday mornings for me and for you are so crucial. This is where we snap back into reality to be reminded of our good God and creator, our heavenly shepherd, who didn't leave us to waste away or to drown in the ocean. No, but he's here to cause us to grow. While our physical bodies may age, our inner man may be renewed into maturity. So question for you this morning. What does that look like for you? What is your next step to grow into maturity? What does that look like? I'm wondering if you can think of that in your mind. What are the next steps that you need to take if you are here and Jesus is here and we're just ever until the day we're with him in glory, but we're making those steps. What is the next step for you? Ask yourself, do I regularly meet, even if just once a month, with someone here for the purpose of talking about my faith? Do you have a regularly weekly routine uh, and rhythm of spending time in God's word? Have you seen yourself this last year or two growing in prayer? Um, Let's just assume for a minute, maybe you say, Thomas, I have been growing in prayer. I have been meeting weekly or monthly with fellow brothers and sisters in this church to grow in Christ. I have been spending time in my daily devotions. And I say, okay, great, you're, you're growing in maturity. What's the next step then for you, brother or sister? Is it perhaps that you then say, I want to grow in theology and doctrine? I want to be able to accurately and adequately be able to handle this word and teach it to others. Maybe that's your next step. So that our church will do the work of shepherding and growing up into maturity. Now, I'm not asking that you swallow all of this in one bite. I'm just asking, what is the next thing for you? And and if you're not sure, this would be a great time to reach out to an elder in this church to say, hey, help me figure out what is the next thing for me to walk in maturity. That is why the shepherds, the elders, and pastors are here to do that work, to walk alongside you to help you think through these things. Because we ask the question, should, should a Christian be bobbing up and down in the ocean of lies, not growing? And Paul's answer to this is verse 15. No. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so, here not only is growing mentioned twice in, in these last two verses, but... 
this truth is in the context uh, of the truth that Paul has been just finished referencing, the knowledge of the Son of God. We think about the gospel, Christ in the gospel. And, and so I just say, church, let's do this. You see a fellow Christian struggling with sin, and what do we say? We can say to our fellow Christian who's struggling with sin, knock it off. Knock it off. What are you doing? Stop that. Get over that. You know that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, we can do that. Or we can say to somebody, you know, whose struggle is, I, I'm going to go to the refrigerator late at night and say, oh, if that's your sin temptation, well, then now every time you run to the refrigerator, you need to do 15 push-ups to make up for that sin. That sort of mentality, I think, misses what God ultimately has for us, this love in the gospel. If our fellow brother or sister is struggling with sin, maybe perhaps we go to them and we speak like this. Friend, Jesus Christ died for you. He died to save you from this sin and death. Now, I know you already see this as wrong, but can you also see that the Lord is so patient and so kind towards you? He's not willing that you would perish. He's not wanting you to bob up and down on the sea. No, I'm, I'm with you, walking with you to help you remember that you are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you're no longer condemned. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Friend, are you in Christ Jesus? Yes. Then let us not persist in this. Let me walk with you, seeing that Christ's forgiveness is for you here right now. I wonder if we speak like that to our fellow brothers and sisters, how much quicker they will be to run from sin and run to Christ. How about those in our midst who are suffering? Um, We need to remind them of the good news too. In truth and love, the love is embedded in this. So from the wheelchair all the way to the cancer diagnosis, that we would say, friend, friend, hear me now. Jesus Christ, he will not waste one single moment of your life. He's not going to waste your current struggle. You may be in the hospital bed saying, what are you doing, Lord? It's not a waste. No, this is not his worst plan for you. If you knew how much Christ loved you, you wouldn't change a thing. Because you would see how much he has in store for you. For the scripture says that we know for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who've been called according to his purpose. Let that settle on your heart. Let that carry you through the dark seasons of suffering. This is what you need. This is what I need. We need loving gospel reminders to carry me through my best and worst moments. And Paul makes it clear, not one of us escapes this need. In verse 16, he says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So thank God. Thank God that he is the source of our growth. He is the source, which we don't have to muster this up on our own. He's given us his Holy Spirit to lead us in doing this. He gave us gifts to help us grow. And the goal of our growth is not just aimless. It's not bobbing up and down. It's that you and I would mature. We'd have the fullness of Christ. Can I just tell you, church, right now, I am so thankful. I really am. I'm very thankful that one day I will be out of a job. In the new heaven and the new earth, 
there's likely going to be a need for carpenters. So Nathan, you're hired. There's going to be a need there. I don't know all of what the new heaven and the new earth will entail and all the jobs that we'll have, but I just assume there's going to be need for gardeners, for administrators, for mechanics, for inventors, for accountants, and so on. But for evangelists, for teachers, for pastors, we're going to be out of a job. I'm going to have to learn a whole new vocation. And I hope it's not plumbing. (laughs) But friends, there's coming a day when the good news will be known by all. It will be believed on by everyone in heaven and we will have full maturity. That's why these giftings are, catch how he says this, verse 13, until. These gifts are until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And when that day comes, there will be no need for these giftings. Until that day, until you hear, Jesse, well done. Judy, well done. Barbara, Clay, Joe, Dan, until you hear that day, well done. I'm asking you, would you join me? and growing in Christ, and leading others to full maturity. Would you pray with me? Father, I consider these verses, these words from Paul, and I think who's sufficient? Lord, I certainly do not have it all, but I see in your good plan, Lord, how you use a a myriad of folks with struggles, with victories, and that, Lord, it was your plan that this would be the way the church triumphs as we walk together towards fullness of Christ and maturity. And so, Spirit, we cry out and we say, would you do in us, Lord, what we struggle to do by our own strength and our own fleshly power? Would the world, the watching world, see the power of God's grace being worked out in the church? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.